Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at The Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. And I'm Pete Wright, and I'm worried about Thor. I mean, he makes a fist and he goes to work, but he just can't perform. <laughs> performance issues today we we're talking about minute 92 which begins with an old-fashioned notion and ends with the old-fashioned security guard joining us on the show today uh back from our season thor matthew fox not to mention the star wars universe podcast superhero ethics hello matthew hey how we doing glad to be back so many podcasts so many podcasts <laughs> we are thrilled to have you and uh, you picked the next five minutes. So we're going to be talking with you about minutes 92 through 96. Is there a particular reason you picked this section of the film? I think there's a couple. Um, the first reason, or perhaps the most important, which I think is a, a good lesson to podcasters, is that I waited pretty late and all the minutes that were really good <laughs> were gone. Um, so that is a part of it. But there were a couple of major notes in this that I, that I really liked. Um as folks who have seen me uh, or heard me on the Marvel Movie Minute for Thor or who have listened to me talk about uh, you know, so many other superhero movies on superhero ethics, as much as I love superheroes, I'm not a fight scene person. I'm much more a consequences person. I'm interested in, I want to say the human stories, but of course we're talking about Thor and Loki and all them, the, but the stories, the consequences, the what happens when... Violence maybe isn't the answer. What happens when uh, we're manipulated? What happens about like, all the different dynamics? As well as, I have some thoughts that are not always the most positive about the, the trend. Like, I love how this movie really gave us a bringing the team together, which I love in this movie. And then every other Avengers movie and pretty much every other superhero team-up movie has decided to spend half the movie bringing the team together instead of just letting the team be together. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in these minutes that I'm going to look forward to talking to. Well, it should be fun. And, you know, speaking of bringing the team together, we're coming into this minute. I mean, this whole section of the film that we're talking about with you is really kind of like the nadir of our story. This is the mm -hmm. lowest of the low point for everybody here. This is this point we're coming in with. You know, Tony has just left this uh, kind of this little meeting between Nick and uh, Steve, Tony, and then Murray Hill, of course, is standing in the back. Uh, but this is this pitch that Nick was making, kind of his last pitch to Steve and Tony, the two people I suppose you could argue are the ones that he was hoping would kind of lead this initiative that he's putting together. And, you know, he gave the direct pitch to Steve about the fact that, you know, um, these are the trading cards that Colson had on him, and now they're all bloody because he's dead. He's pitching to Tony about, hey, Phil knew about this. Uh, he he really believed in this idea of heroes. And then Tony gets up and walks away. And so this minute starts with that line from Fury. Well, it's an old-fashioned notion, this idea of heroes. I mean, how does this how does this fit in kind of the scope of, of Fury as this character kind of in the drive for what he's trying to accomplish here? I think it's a really interesting thing, and it's really, it tells us a lot about who he is, especially because, forgive me for spoilers, we later find out that the blood on those cards is fake, that the cards weren't actually on Coulson. And I think that is a, I do think, and I'm not just saying that to say, Oh, so everything Nick Fury says is fake and it's false and it's ridiculous. 
But I think it's very telling of who his character is that he ha- he does have this idea of the old fashioned notion. But like one of the reasons why the team is already falling apart is that he was keeping all of these secrets from them. That he was saying we want the tesseract for energy, and then you know not that long ago they all figured out, you know why is Shield in the energy business? That's actually Stark's job. He was using it to make weapons. And I think there's an element to which Fury is kind of the man grasping at straws right now. We, I got to talk with you all about Thor and what an what a interesting movie it was and all the different dynamics. And one thing I think we touched on a lot during those minutes was the idea of what a game changer this was. You know, that until then, all the Avengers stories were still about things that humanity created out of humanity with science. Now we find out that literal gods from Norse mythology are real. That they can come to town, that, that, you know, without Thor, that destroyer probably destroys most of New Mexico, if not far more. And now Loki's back. And it, it's why I think Nick Fury is one of my favorite characters in the whole series, because he, he to me plays the role, and forgive me, I'm going on a tangent here, and I'm even going to mention the, the, the two letters that are verboten when we're discussing Marvel, but DC. Amanda Waller is one of my favorite characters, because she's the one who says, Yes, Superman is great. Yes, these these hawk people are great. But what if they turn bad? What if bad things happen? We need to have every weapon in our arsenal ready, even if that means I have to lie, cheat, and steal to get them. And to me, Nick Fury and Amanda Waller are very much peas from the same pod. And like on some level, I believe that he he does have this idea of the old-fashioned notion. And I think we saw a lot of that again skipping ahead in, in Captain Marvel with a younger Fury. But the fact that he's willing to say, okay, what can I fake in order to create the thing that will pull on their heartstrings to, for this real idea? I think this scene is just, this scene, once you know everything else about it, is the perfect encapsulation of everything that is both good and bad about Nick Fury. And everything that's just complex about him. Yeah, it's, it's actually interesting just to step meta just for a second that you, you got me thinking here that bring the team together commentary is, is so fascinating that they ended up taking uh, what is a, a, a much more sort of grounded uh, team and incorporating not just the mystical, there is a God on our team, but there is a God and a, uh, that is our central antagonist for most of the movie, right? That, that, that seems like such a, it, it seems so far afield from where we started with Iron Man, that, that it was all, here is what man hath wrought. And and now we're we're stepping it stepping it up. It is just I you know I I muse on this only to say it is a mystery why this works on many levels. Like it it's just it's just weird how we have adapted to it that we haven't even broached the conversation of Doctor Strange. So you know I think that's really I think that's really interesting. The other thing we keep you know we we keep dancing around here is that is is that it is Fury that is a central agent of fascism in the in shield that this you know we're going to put and and working with tony we're going to put a shield around the world um it ends up being a central motive, motivating factor of uh you know of their effort to do what they believe is good and ultimately becomes a human evil and and i think that's that's an interesting twist which is really not far afield from what we have in in Winter Soldier, also, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, sure. a, in a certain aspect, like that's just the next step. It is just the next step, exactly. And I think what Marvel does so well is to say, 
okay, well, look at, let's look at the real human problems we have. And it's everything from, you know, a brother and sister fighting over, you know, who ate the cereal in the house to these galactic existential threats. And, you know, I think for most of human history, when fascists have used the an existential threat as their motivation, they're exaggerating it. They're like, you know, it's, oh, it's, it's this group is going to take over. They're going to conquer the world. This group is attacking our way of life. You know, we are being replaced. All of this nonsense. And, and in this, the existential threat is quite literally true. You know, Fury, like Amanda Waller, is right that, not, not that I'm saying that they're right for the fascist tactics, but the thing that they are afraid of that some alien force could come in and conquer the planet is legitimately an option on the table. And that's what we see. It is, I think, such an interesting place for Fury to be where it becomes, again, I'm not, <laughs> this is going to sound like I'm defending fascism. I'm not in the slightest. But I think often, often when fascists use fear to justify the things they want to do, it's easy to say, wait, that fear isn't real. They're just doing it because they want power. In Fury's case, I don't think that's the case. I think Fury genuinely believes this threat is real, and I think the movie says it is. But he's all, but but then then the question becomes: even if the threat is real, does that justify the things he's willing to do? And and that I think becomes the real question of the movie, especially then, given his choice at the end of the movie to not do the fascist thing, or at least the more oppressive thing, uh, that would maybe have a higher chance of ending the existential threat than what he chooses to do. And that actually really makes me want to have more of the uh, the conflict that had been running through the film between Fury and uh, Maria Hill that had been largely excised. And we we're you know talking about deleted scenes, but the fact that she was um, a very much of a different mindset of his tactics and uh, you know, you know, we'll be talking about her in an upcoming scene uh, about like who actually informed the World Security Council, and so there is some interesting elements of that conflict that really could have uh, amplified these these lines of of conversation and thinking within the film, and it it does again. We've talked about this a lot, Pete, but it makes me frustrated that all of those great uh, bits with Maria Hill have been pulled. Yeah, I'll admit, again, I think there's a lot to talk about in these minutes, but if I had signed on a lot earlier, I probably would have picked those minutes where Fury suddenly seems to reverse himself, where he isn't willing to do the thing that you would think is needed to undo the existential threat necessarily of, of nuking you know, New York City, a very large city, and having huge collateral damage and, and civilian death. Because um, I do think that is such a fascinating moment, especially because, and wow, I sound terrible to your audience, I'm not entirely sure I agree with him in terms of like the faith he puts in this small group of heroes. I think one of the conceits of a superhero movie is always going to be that a small group of heroes is always going to be better than a large, faceless bureaucracy. That That's an issue that I like to see troubled a little bit. Um, and I think it's one of my, I love this movie. But I do think this movie is a great example of that, you know, the great men of history and, and one great woman of history are always going to be better than a mass group, uh, which is which is an idea I don't always entirely agree with. 
It's actually, I think it's really interesting on that point that we're talking about all these things that we wanted out of Maria Hill and, and Fury's relationship here. And we're on the cusp of seeing some more of that relationship in Secret Invasion, which might as well be called Secret Immigration, right? As a metaphor for, oh, they're replacing us. They're literally once again replacing us, right? That's the that's the ultimate evil. And Maria Hill's in all six episodes of this run. And so it, it's, it's fascinating that we, you know, it, she, she may once again get a little bit of, of play, uh, in terms of having harder conversations about some of these issues and what Fury has been through to bring him here to this fight. Um, I'm, I'm eager based on what we have in this movie to see where they go together. As opposed to this Maria Hill that is relegated to standing in the back the entire time. Exactly. Exactly. This conversation. She's just there. It's ridiculous. It's frustrating. Yeah. Um, speaking about the bridge, though, I, 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 there's a couple things that I do like about this scene, particularly how it's shot here. It's such a still camera. It's very bleak. The stillness in the bridge is apparent. I do think that's a little funny, and it does make me question the fact that a grenade actually went off in her earlier. The fact that they've somehow managed to deal with all that and everybody's just back at work, I scratch my head at a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it it also did make me wonder, what about that arrow that Clint shot into the machine that uh, had been reprogramming and shutting things down? Is that still stuck in it? Is it like a tick? You can't pull it out? Like, how do they deal with that? Like, those <laughs> random little things that I'm like, hmm. Well, the S.H.I.E.L.D., I, I think we're underestimating the S.H.I.E.L.D. cleaning team, right? They are <laughs> extraordinary at their job. Some of the best in the business. I mean, I think one thing that we learned that the later Black Widow movie uh, confirms for us, and it's an important physics lesson, is that when it comes to large objects in the sky that have their thing that holds them up damaged, they fall at a very specific rate, which is the rate that plot demands. Because yeah. um, <laughs> according to the Black Widow movie, that thing falls incredibly slowly. Um, and similarly here, the, the helicarrier is falling exactly or as fast or as slow and is exhibiting whatever damage it needs. I think by this point, the engines have been fixed. Uh, but yeah, it's always exactly as damaged and as calm or as frenetic as the plot demands. Exactly. So we go from this moment, Tony's left and, and uh, you know, Fury is, um, you know, feeling, uh, I suppose, uh, despondent about the position of this uh, Avengers initiative of his. And we end up with Thor in the field. This is this uh, field that he landed by the shores of New Jersey. And um, this is an interesting little moment with Thor. And I'm really curious. And Matthew, you and I talked a whole season about uh, about Thor. Mm-hmm. Um, it, this is a, a strange little moment. And I'm trying to figure out why we have this portrayal of Thor here. Because it really seems like he's either having doubts that he can wield Mjolnir, or he's actually trying to wield Mjolnir and can't wield Mjolnir for some particular reason. Uh, how does this... Uh, what, what are you getting out of the way that this scene plays and why we're getting it here. Yeah, it's funny because it's such a blink-and-you-miss-it scene, you know, with the main thing being uh, Bruce Banner and the security guard and some humor and, frankly, some very strategically placed rubble because there were a lot of us <laughs> who would not have minded if that rubble was not there because Bruce Banner with any clothes on is a very appealing sight. And so I admit I'd, I'd never really noticed this Thor scene until, again, the minute-by-minute analysis and what we talked about like, I don't remember him having any trouble with the hammer at a later point in the movie. So m- my interpretation of it is that 
he remembers the last time that he failed. And then on some level, he does think that he has failed again, that he has let his brother manipulate him, that he got sucked into the arguments, you know, his ego battles with Tony and and with Cap and with, you know, the fight that they all had uh, earlier in the movie. And just all of them getting so wrapped up that that Loki played all of them like chess pieces. And I guess the way I, I don't think that there's any any evidence to think that in that moment, he is actually trying to grab Mjolnir and it doesn't respond to him. Uh, or that Odin has punished him in any way, or anyone has punished him. I think it's that it's that kind of like, if you've touched the glass before, and the glass was really hot, and you got burned, then maybe like you have a moment later where your hand starts to reach out for it, and you pause, and you wonder like, is this going to be the bad thing again? And I and I, I guess so. To me, it's kind of like him having this moment of, wait, is it possible that I'm going to reach from Yolnir and I won't deserve it? Because honestly, right now, I'm not sure that I deserve it. Like, to me, I think it's, a, it's an important moment of his growth. There's a whole longer rant I can go on about this, this topic, but I'll try to keep it, <laughs> uh, keep that because it's very tangential. But the general idea being that there's a lot of stuff about like moral and ethical development where it starts as some external force saying you have to do the good thing or you'll be punished. And that like moral maturity is when you yourself think like I am supposed to do the moral thing because or else like, you know. I am not as good a person. And so I think in this case, it's not that Odin questions him, it's that Thor is questioning himself. And and so he, I, to me, that's what that pause is. It's him having a moment of like, oh, maybe I shouldn't, maybe if I reach for this, it's not going to happen. And am I mentally ready for that because it was so devastating last time? I guess I just am not sure, like, of what just happened with him. Is it just the fact that Loki got one over on him that's giving him the doubt? And I guess that's what I just don't, I'm not sure I understand exactly what would give him reason to doubt himself here. Yeah, I feel like that's un, that's unrequited uh, angst from a different movie. And I think that's the problem with this, as you say, blink and you miss it sequence, because we don't get the benefit of seeing him nervous before and we never see him conquer his fear later. Like yeah. he just. Without this scene, we have a consistent Thor. With this scene, we have a consistent Thor and a scene that you forget happened. Right? Like, th- <laughs> yeah. there's there's no weight to it at all. I mean, but isn't that the whole point of Marvel, Mo- Marvel Movie Minute is that we had <laughs> canon tiny moments that are never noticed by anyone else? Um, You're right. I, that yeah, is sure. our subtitle. <laughs> I guess to me, like, the role it plays in the movie is just the, you're supposed to see every individual person alone and with their struggle and that frankly Thor's struggle is maybe not as pronounced as the others so it is a blink and you miss it thing yeah, right but i do think it is supposed to be that he he has some level of pause because to me i don't think it's just that loki bested him it's that his duty was always or at least he had, since he prompt and you can say like maybe he did this because of jane and that's that's a whole other thing but like he has promised to protect midgard he has promised to protect earth and part of that promise was to put aside his need for glory, his need for vengeance, his need to prove himself in battle against other mighty warriors if it will endanger Earth. And here, Earth is now more in danger in part because he couldn't back down from the macho posturing with Cap and with Tony long enough to stop and say, no, wait a minute, while we're all fighting, Loki's plan is actually coming together. Because perhaps because of all of the people in the room as an Asgardian, theoretically, depending on how you read 
what's actually happening in that room. He should have been the one person in the room who could have been withstanding the Mind Stone's power. Right. Like Loki does. Well, and just to pile on that, in terms of Marvel Movie Minute Legendary Reach, like some of this might be a response to what Fury just said before the big battle of the helicarrier, which is we made these weapons because of this guy pointing at him, right? We made these weapons because you came from space. And so maybe this is like the punchline to that particular joke is, oh, man, I feel bad. My hand needs to stretch. Well, especially because, remember, Thor didn't show up and say, hey, it's awesome that you all have captured Loki. Right. Let me explain to you why I am grateful for you, but I should have him in custody instead. He he just came up and treated them as petty and significant and took Loki from them, which is kind of exactly what Loki did. You know, right. Loki's and humans. Boot, right? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so I think, again, and again, we're headcanoning 10 seconds of, of, of movie. It might be that the directors had all of this in mind. It might be they had none of this in mind. But I do think it really works as, like, to me, I think my least favorite scene in the movie is when Thor comes and challenges them. Because, in part because, and here's where I'm a bad comic book movie fan, watching two heroes fight each other, because I think it'd be cool to see how their powers line up, is always going to be the thing I'm least interested in. And so to me, manufacturing a kind of contrived way for Thor and Cap and Iron Man to all fight each other feels like a waste of movie to me. And now I've just pissed off half of your listeners, and I'm very sorry for that. And I, for the people who wanted that scene, I'm very glad they got it. But to me, it's kind of a waste. And so I at least appreciate the maybe Thor is recognizing that he was kind of being an idiot there and, and reflecting on that somewhat. Yeah, you and I are in the same camp with that. I, mm. I don't really care for that either. <laughs> um, well, and you know, there is an element to all of this too, because the way that they, the director chose to craft this with his editor is we have this moment of Thor doubting himself, whatever he's doing as he's, uh, you know, flexing his hand and, and debating about uh, Mjolnir while we end up getting this echoey security guard's voice coming in over the top of Thor. So we're getting kind of a, mm. an L cut here as, you know, we have the audio from the next scene playing and the security guard is very specifically saying you fell out of the sky. Now, obviously that does tie in directly to Bruce as that scene, but the fact that they chose to put this here while Thor is debating, you can't help but think that there is some element of Thor also thinking about the fact that this is this person who came down from the sky, this Asgardian who, as you said, is supposed to be taking care of the people here and is doing a, a very poor job at this particular point. And so you can see perhaps there is that internal struggle that he's actually working through here. Yeah, it feels so much like a like a little bit of a maudlin kind of DC play. Like I, I, what I hear is the voice of Jonathan Kent. <laughs> Right. Like you fell out of the sky, Kalel. Right. And and so uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't love it just because everybody's falling from the sky at this point. It feels like a weird cut, especially because we're going into a moment of, again, a bit of humor. And and um, so I, I think we could have used a little bit more breathing room personally uh, in that in that cut. And I think for me. And again, this is a topic where I touch on a couple times for these next few minutes, but now is maybe the time to kind of really fully explain this. It's hard for me to not view this through the fact that this scene happens in so many of the movies that are still to come. 
you know, and that may not be fair to this movie specifically. To give you an idea of what I'm talking about, I remember introducing Casablanca to a friend of mine, and one of her first thoughts, her first reactions was, well, it just the movie felt so cliched. I'd seen all of these scenes before. Yeah, right. And my right. response was, well, but, but this is where the cliches come from. Yeah, right. <laughs> this right, is right. where they all originate. <laughs> it's hard to remember what I felt like watching this movie the first time, because now I feel like, oh, of course, the team has to fall apart so it can get back together again, exactly as which exactly happened in Ultron, which exactly happened in the later Avengers movies, which exactly happens in, you know, name a super, superhero team-up. Guardians of the Galaxy, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, Marvel Disney has seemed to fall in love with this idea of you give us a team of people who are really fun to watch just be a team and a family together and then give every contrived reason why they can't just be a team together, you know? As much as I love Daredevil, the fact that we just couldn't let Foggy and Matt and Karen just, like, be together as a group and have their squabbles, but said they always have to be apart drove me crazy. And I... I, That drove me crazy, too, because I'm, like, a Matlock guy. Like, I just like the idea that there is a group of people that don't fall apart all the time. Right. And, (laughs) And again, so it's like... In the first Avengers movie, I think actually it feels a lot more earned to let them have tension before they finally come together. But I think I would like this scene a lot more if we hadn't done the exact same scene in Ultron. You know, if in Ultron they had just been a team that stuck together, even with, or maybe it was just all of them against Tony. But, you know, exactly. Well, that's why one of the best, like, there, the, some of the best Avengers sequences are the Avengers where, like, you know, is it, uh, is it Ultron or Civil War where they're all sitting around and they're trying to pick up the hammer and they're just chatting around yeah, the table? Ultron. Like, yeah, that's Ultron. That's, that's a fantastic scene. Yeah. That's the scene I want more of. It comes before the battle scene where they're all working together and, you know, Cap, right. you know, talks about their language and Tony makes fun of him for that. Yeah. And they're all just having fun. Yeah. It's it is perpetually the challenge with films like this, and I can I can see the justification by the studios, by the by everybody involved to try to create this drama because stories are conflict, and and by introducing more conflict, it it you know it they're able to kind of craft that tension and and do the you know all the different waves of the ups and downs that they need to have over the course of the story actors like that too they don't necessarily want a movie i mean talk to you know half of the people who played in the x-men movies they're like all i did was come in and use my powers and have a couple scenes and they weren't very thrilled with that because they weren't used in a way where as an actor they got to actually do their thing and so you can understand this in film, particularly because it is so many people, as opposed to comic books where it's just drawings on a page, uh, where all these different voices come together and say, well, can I get a little bit more here? I really wish that I could say uh, something here. You can see how all these people start kind of wanting to kind of craft more tension and stuff. And it's just, it's inevitably always going to be an issue anytime you introduce a group that is trying to be a part of a story. And so... Nature of the beast, I guess, unfortunately. Okay, but uh, Ocean's Eleven, right? There's a lot of fun bickering and all kinds of stuff, but the the group doesn't, like, completely fracture as a way to come together, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like there's a way to make a team-up movie where the team-up movie is about the coherence, the cohesion of the team solving a grander problem and having grander conflict at large than just constantly fighting, infighting. 
Yeah, but again, to the point of like some of these stories, like where teams do work well together, some of those characters are only there because they fit a very particular role, and they're just like, like you know, a, like Casey Scott Affleck. Con, like yeah, Scott <laughs> Con and Casey Affleck. Like I'm just like I don't even remember what they do. I just remember that they're kind of there mm-hmm. as yeah somebody to get the number to eleven. <laughs> you know, I mean that's really I, what it came down to. I mean, one of my favorite superhero movies, again going into the land of the forbidden letters, uh, is Batman Returns, which is the second of the Michael Keaton Batman movies, and. Part of what I love about it is part of what a lot of things that people who've studied film and say, like, this is what a movie needs, hate it. Your main character, Batman, doesn't have an arc. He's Batman at the start of the movie. He's comfortable being Batman in the middle of the movie. And he's comfortable being Batman at the end of the movie. And he's largely a, you know, the people who have great arcs are Christopher Walken's character and Catwoman and Penguin. And but really, it is it's a day in the life of Batman movie. And right now, for most superheroes, they get a trilogy. The first movie is their origin story. The second movie is the thing that makes them question or doubt, should they be this superhero? And then the third is them coming to terms with being the superhero, but mostly ending their time as the superhero, or in some way coming as important. We never actually get to see them just being a superhero for the whole movie. Batman Returns does it and is considered one of the most controversial movies because of it. Granted, also because it's got, you know, weird lines like, get in the dock, which I think is a line of comedic brilliance, but many people don't <laughs> love Danny DeVito's Penguin. But yeah, I, I think when I'll speak, I think you're very right, Andy, that so much about the film industry pushes us to think we need character arcs, we need conflict. And while I think that's very true, I think there are certain cliches that we've just decided everyone should fall into that. I am, I don't think, I think it really works in Avengers, but I think in other things, it doesn't work as well. Yeah. It's time to maybe explore working, developing some new cliches. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Give me new cliches. Hashtag new cliche, (laughs) which if I can give a completely unsolicited, but important point, if you want to just keep the old cliches forever, get AI to write your stories. If you want new cliches, pay the writers well. <laughs> I'll now go. step off the picket line. Go ahead, next question. <laughs> All right. Well, so we're, you know, we've gone from Thor. We kind of introduced the security guard through this line, you fell out of the sky. And that does bring us to the the final part of our minute here. This is, uh, we figure out what happened to Bruce after Hulk fell off that aircraft that he had been destroying and fell. And now we get a sense as to what actually happened. He landed uh, in this uh, kind of old rundown warehouse uh, where he's kind of, we see him uh, laying in a giant pile of rubble and as you said, Matthew, with conveniently placed rubble so that the the naked uh, Mark Ruffalo isn't exposed. But, um, it, and we also meet our security guard. This is, before we do anything, I want to do the IMDb game with good old Harry Dean Stanton. Um, fantastic. How would you even begin? Actor, yes. Uh, 207 credits. He, uh, sadly passed away in 2017, but, uh, you know, he was working all the way up until, uh, you know, he ended up having, uh, some projects released posthumously all the way up into 2020. So, 207 credits, TV and film. Any idea? I know it's a lot of movies, but any idea where you would go for Harry Dean Stanton? He's one of those character actors where I know I've seen him in a million things. And I would bet that of those 217, less than 20 does he appear for more than five minutes on screen. 
which is not a critique of him in any way, but I feel like he has, he, he's very much the person who always plays this funny, often irascible old man, or, I mean, also, I'm, I mean, I'm dating myself perhaps here that I'm sure he's had a very long career before he became that old, but I, I'm embarrassed that I can't place any individual role because I think I've seen him in a hundred things. And at least in what I've seen, he's never on screen for more than a few minutes, but as a kind of funny one-off, but, but, but very important character in that specific moment. He definitely has some of those, but there are some very big films he has been a part of. Uh, Pete, do you have any guesses? Well, uh, Alien is the very first one that I think of. Uh, and then I kind of fall into, my God, he's been in everything else as a face. And he's amazing. <laughs> but like, was he, did he ever have a, like a big series that he was in for a lot of episodes that I might have seen? He's been in a lot of TV, but nothing that uh, is on his uh known for because because he was he was huge in like the cowboy stuff right he like, was in I big know, love big um, love yeah, for okay. almost 40 episodes he did a lot of uh a lot of tv but most of the stuff that he did was one or two episodes yeah. nothing yeah nothing as big as big love like I, the most i'm seeing is laramie he was in four episodes of laramie four episodes of rawhide uh, rawhide i was else. thinking eight of like episodes, rawhide and Gunsmoke. eight episodes of gun smoke yeah Gunsmoke, but, okay uh, yeah, five episodes of Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Everything else is like one or two uh, or three. So uh, like every time I see his face, I think, oh, that's amazing. I, I love Harry Dean Stanton. And I'm embarrassed that I, I can't think of any more like big things. I mean, wait, we did the Escape from New York minute. Like he's a he's Escape from New York, right? He is in Escape from New York. Yes. Yeah. But that's not one of his known for. But yeah, he plays brain in that. So, yeah. The others, I'll just tell you, are one of his most recent films that he was the star in called Lucky. That was a 2017 film in which he plays a 90-year-old atheist and the quirky, uh, and it's following his spiritual journey as he's uh, uh, kind of dealing with life in a desert, small desert town. Was Was that the David Lynch thing? No, you're thinking of the straight story, right? With Richard Farnsworth? Is that what you're thinking of? No, John Carroll Lynch stars David Lynch. Lucky. Ron Livingston, Harry Dean Stanton, David Lynch. Oh, it's star. Oh, starring David Lynch. Sorry, I thought you meant the one that he did with David Lynch because he did the straight story. Yeah, that's right. All Lynches. All the Lynches are involved. So many Lynches. So Lucky, Repo Man, which is another big one of his from 1984, and The Green Mile, where he plays uh, Toot Toot. He's the one who's... Uh, walk oh, does the walkthroughs. Yeah, the, does okay. Yeah. That's finally oh. one I can remember him in. <laughs> yeah. So that's Harry Dean Stanton. So uh, yes, but he is our security guard. We have this little scene here with uh, Bruce coming to, and he is uh, here, and the security guard um, lets him know he didn't hurt anybody. He fell while, or he was awake when he fell. He saw the whole thing, all that good stuff. So. Thoughts on the, I mean, we're only seeing part of this sequence here, but thoughts on what we have at this point. I, I want to talk about more we get, but I, I think I can say a couple quick things here, which is I think one of the most important lines is you aimed. Uh, there's nobody around here to get hurt. You did scare some pigeons, though, and Banner says lucky. And then he says, or just good aim. You were awake when you fell. Yeah, which I think because I think I think this this is the scene that's meant to do two things. It's meant to give Banner some absolution, you know, because he does know that like him. Uh, becoming a Hulk 
is a big part of what caused all the problems. And and he just revealed that he had tried to unalive himself due to you know his feelings about the harm Hulk can cause. I think we have to assume that he was in like Bruce Banner hits the concrete that hard. Bruce Banner is now a smear on the concrete. There was no more Bruce Banner. He was the Hulk when he fell. And I think the idea that the Hulk could have enough self-control to aim to some extent and to be cognizant of, I need to hit someplace that humans aren't, is I think kind of a nice little poke to Banner of the Hulk is not as terrible as you think it is. But it's also just the kind of the, we need to meet the every man whose life is at stake. You know, we have to remember what it is we're fighting for. It's not to me a, this is the scene that I think of when I think of why is this a really great movie, but I think it serves, at least from what we've seen, those two purposes perfectly adequately. Well, one of my questions, and this is, uh, you know, I suppose goes to the nature of the beast and the nature of the relationship between Hulk and Bruce. If Hulk falls, and I mean, obviously Hulk fell because the security guard saw him when he fell. We'll find out tomorrow that he was green when he was falling. If the Hulk crashed into this old abandoned warehouse, I can't imagine he would have been knocked unconscious. He would have just kind of pulled himself out of the rubble and just bounded off to go do more damage or something else. So what is it that causes Hulk in this particular moment to decide, no, I need to just go to sleep and let Bruce or let Bruce back out. Like, is there some form of conscious decision based on everything that had been going on up to this point? What Bruce knows in his head that Loki is this threat, all of this stuff. Is there something in Hulk's psyche deep down where the two of them come to this agreement that I need to turn back right now because I have to get somewhere else more important? I look at this and I think I I can totally see that read and that this is a poke at the future unification of Hulk Banner Psyche and Professor Hulk and all of that. I think my my hunch is that wasn't what was intended. (laughs) My hunch is what they intended was he hit the ground as Hulk and then changed and hand wave, hand wave, street clothes. Right. Like, I just don't I don't feel like that's something that they want to necessarily tie into some future version that is nay 10 years away. I mean, we did learn only a few minutes ago that the ancient Asgardian mind magic can be undone by hitting someone very hard in the head. True. So I do think <laughs> a degree of hand-waving powers to get the character moment that is is not unique to this moment. That precedent has been very well established only a few minutes earlier. Right. The, the real objective of this scene is to get Bruce Banner naked in rubble. Right. Like, honestly, <laughs> like that's the funny part. And we we need some way to get there. And however, whatever lens we we put on top of that, if that if, if connecting it to future unification of psyche works, which I think is awesome, so be it. I don't think Tignataro was planning that part. Which when you consider that it's generally the Chris's who are considered the really hot pieces of, you know, man can man eye candy in the MCU. Uh, you know, Mark Ruffalo frequently in interviews is like, Oh my god, it's Chris Evans. Like he seems to forget that he's a celebrity himself. And I think right. this was a nice moment to remember, like, you yeah. know, Mark Ruffalo spends a good deal of time in the gym as well. Let's let him have a little moment to to generate some thirst, which again, I do not <laughs> yeah. object to in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> So dirty, you know. So dirty. <laughs> you don't remember me? Like, so filthy. <laughs> um, the last thing I have about this scene is 
there's some capacity where it kind of uh, clues us in. This is this is really the point where we learned that they are in Jersey, but it really does can start confusing things, especially when we talk about the extended elements of this scene in tomorrow's minute. We knew that they were heading south to get over water, so that kind of seemed like it was putting it at the very south end of the state. But there, I suppose is a possibility they could have been over New York City and they went out over the bay, Hulk and Thor fell out and they kind of landed on the north end of New Jersey, which is kind of what the extended scene implies. But if you look at like the south end of New Jersey, it's full of all of these grasslands and wildlife refuges and things that really make sense for a place where Thor would be landing as far as like that giant field. So it's very confusing and they really do a great job of not spelling any of it out. So... We don't. It's <laughs> yeah. just the mythical Earth, nineteen nine nine nine. Having so. lived in that part of the world, Northern New Jersey is pretty much just megalopolis. It's all just suburbs, and and the idea that anyone would hold on to industrial warehouse space and not be using it, given the prices of real estate in that part of the world, it's sure. got to be southern, like more towards the coast. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it for today's minute. Let's wrap it up. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about minute 93 again with you, Matthew. So uh, tell everybody about what you're up to out there. Yeah, well, it's a pretty exciting time for me to be coming on here because I believe as of the time that uh, this goes live, we will finish completing the the Passover. The Ethical Panda podcasts that I, I run will both will, will both be part of the True, True Story FM uh, family of podcasts. Uh, I do all my podcasting, as I said, under the name The Ethical Panda. There's two that I run primarily, Superhero Ethics and Star Wars Universe Podcast. This year in particular, uh, we've moved Superhero Ethics to a twice-a-month format for the moment while I'm doing... There's been so much Star Wars content coming out that I'm trying to cover, and I've been just a little overwhelmed. I don't have a regular co-host, so I'm doing a lot to kind of keep both both going. My hope is that by sometime this summer, we're going to be back to doing regular episodes every week on both. But yeah, if you enjoy the kind of, uh, you know, who cares about the battles? Let's talk about the characters and the dynamics. Uh, we have a lot of fun on them. I've had both Andy and Pete as guests. Uh, by the time this airs, Pete and I had a great conversation about, like, what in the world is happening next with Star Wars, where uh, Pete got to ask a lot of, like, I don't want to watch five seasons of animated television. Can you just tell me what I should care about? And I told him what we should <laughs> care about. Um, so that's going to be a great episode. I also hope by the time this episode comes out, uh, I will have an episode out with both Andy and Pete, schedules depending on the WGA strike and sort of how we all feel about that. Uh, my earlier comments might have indicated to you that I am slightly on the left when it comes to these matters, uh, i.e. slum it to the left of, you know, Mr. Marks and things like that. Uh, so that'll be a really fun episode to talk about as well. But yeah, it's just a lot of great content there. And um, all of it you can find by going to theethicalpanda.com uh, and I assume by this point you'll also be able to find it at True Story FM True Story FM right on the uh, right on the front page we're excited to have you and uh, have loved being guests on your show love talking about talking about these properties the way you talk about these properties it's been a lot of fun so uh, happy yeah, happy and, and grateful that you are joining the club awesome absolutely absolutely well the links in the show notes everybody so check those out we'll be, we'll be back tomorrow for Minute 93 so Pete Thanks as always. Oh, Andy, tomorrow it's Pop Art Warhol Hawkeye. <laughs> Until next time, true believers. Mark.
Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show.